welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion of miracles in the Bible, possibly one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture. To help us do that, I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we want to start looking at the objections that are frequently raised about the Bible accounts of miracles. But to try to be thorough, we don't think we will finish with this topic today. R.D., why don't you give us a little background on why it's important for us not only to think about the role that miracles play in the Christian faith, but also why believers need to think about potential objections to the historical validity of these miracles. Well, here at Anchored by Truth, our fundamental purpose for having this radio show and podcast is to demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. Now, it goes without saying that in our culture today, that claim for biblical inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration is frequently disputed. And sadly, there are many people even within the church today who no longer hold to biblical inerrancy or infallibility. In other words, there are actually people within the church who no longer see the Bible as the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. And I don't want to go into too many details about the most common aspects to those kind of views, because I think it's more important to talk about the truth, about what is true, than it is to talk about the errors that may crop up, because you try to talk about errors, there's going to be unlimited number of those that you'd have to address. But certainly one of the most common objections that's lodged against the Bible, against its infallibility and inerrancy, is that it contains supernatural accounts, and of course, any book that contains a supernatural account, in their view, just can't be trusted. So, of course, the Bible's accounts of miracles, which are supernatural events, they involve a suspension of the normal operation of what's called natural laws. Naturally, those biblical accounts of miracles are a frequent target of these objections to the supernatural aspect of creation that those miracles represent. 
But I think it's important for believers to understand that far from being a sort of side issue about the discussion of the reliability of the Bible, miracles are an essential element in demonstrating the truth of the Christian faith. How so? I mean, I think most Christians think that the accounts of miracles in the Bible are good stories, and they may even find them inspirational. But I think many believers would say, for instance, that even if Jesus didn't turn the water into wine, as we've heard about in our opening scripture, that wouldn't affect the central purpose of Jesus' life or message. And respectfully, I would have to disagree with that conclusion for at least three reasons. First, if Jesus had never performed any miracles during his life or ministry, we would have far less, if any, evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be the fully human, fully divine Son of God. Even Jesus pointed out to his critics that if they didn't believe him and his message, they could at least believe the miraculous works that he had done. So the miracles that were performed by Jesus and by the other people within the Bible are an essential element of demonstrating that those people are, in fact, messengers of God. And, of course, in Jesus' case, that those miracles were, in fact, demonstration that he was not only fully human, but that he was fully divine. Second, if the miracle accounts in the Bible were just a form of well-intentioned, pious fable, then we would have to admit that they're wrong, or an error, or a lie, and that would mean that parts of the Bible aren't trustworthy. So if we determine that certain parts of the Bible aren't trustworthy, then we'd have to start sorting between which parts of the Bible are, and which parts of the Bible aren't worthy of our trust. And third, if the Bible contained no evidence of miracles, or any evidence, for instance, of fulfilled prophecy, we would not have any evidence that the Bible has a supernatural origin, not a natural one. I mean, after all, if we're going to talk about a communication coming straight from an almighty, everlasting, eternal, all-knowing God, if we're going to talk about a book coming from a supernatural source, That book needs to contain some evidence that we can trust that, in fact, there is a supernatural dimension to that book. And so the Bible's miracle accounts help provide evidence of that supernatural dimension, which is very important, again, going back to the original point that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. So your point is that the miracle accounts contained in the Bible demonstrate something that is absolutely vital to the overall truth claim of the Bible that the Bible is a special revelation from the God who created the universe and who has superintended the course of history to bring about His intended purpose. Exactly. As you said, the Bible is God's special revelation to mankind. Now, when you make careful observations about the universe, and especially about life on Earth, we can know for sure, just from those observations, that the universe cannot account for its own existence. And we've covered those lines of reasoning and thought in several other episodes of Anchored by Truth, so I'm not going to go into them much here today. But if you just, for instance, take a look at the second law of thermodynamics, the universe is slowly but surely running out of usable energy, then we know that the universe cannot be eternal. And therefore, the universe cannot explain its own existence because there would have been a time period before the universe existed and there'll be a time period after the universe exists. We know that somewhere there must be a self-existent being who is the ultimate first cause of everything. 
Now, theologians sometimes refer to the source of the knowledge that comes to us from our observations of nature as being general revelation, because it is general in nature, and it is general in the audience to whom it communicates that message. You know, the information that we get that there has to be an eternal self-existent being that exists somewhere to account for the existence of the universe, that knowledge is available to anyone who wants to think about it. But general revelation isn't sufficient to tell us everything we need to know about God. For instance, from the size of the universe, we can know that its creator is a being of immense power and knowledge, but we would never know that God has a special plan of redemption or that God exists as a Trinitarian entity consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The only place we get that kind of knowledge is from the Bible. So, the knowledge we get from observing nature is a general revelation, but the knowledge that we get from the Bible is a special revelation. Right. And we've stressed heavily in our first few episodes that we're doing on miracles that God used miracles in the Bible to authenticate certain people as being messengers sent from Him. In other words, messengers sent to bring God's special revelation. So if those miracles did not actually occur as literal history, it would take away a very important channel that we have of verifying which messengers had actually been commissioned by God to bring us authentic knowledge that he wanted us to have. In other words, the miracles are an essential part of the overall plan that God had to deliver a special revelation to his people. So, far from being a peripheral element of the Bible stories, The accounts of miracles are front and center as a key way for letting us know that God has made a special revelation to his people. How then do we address the objection that the accounts of miracles can't be trusted because they are stories that run counter to our own experience? Miracles describe events that violate the laws of nature, and since, in our experience, those laws can't be violated, We must view miracles as either impossible or they are events with a natural explanation we just don't understand. And those are the most common objections that are lodged against miracles. The objection is they are just physically impossible, or sometimes it's phrased that the event may have occurred, but there is a perfectly natural explanation for that event, but that perfectly natural explanation just wasn't revealed in the Bible. So let's take a look at the first of those objections, that miracles are contrary to the laws of nature and therefore can't occur. Now the first observation that I would make about this objection points to something very important. Miraculous occurrences cannot be explained by the normal operation of the laws of nature. So if those occurrences, if those miracles have occurred, They are a graphic demonstration. They are strong evidence that there is someone or something that is supernatural. I think it's a reasonable conclusion that if it is impossible within the laws of nature for the laws of nature to be violated, that if miracles, which are a suspension of the laws of nature, have occurred, that that suspension indicates the existence of someone or something that is supernatural. And of course, that was one of the reasons that those miracle accounts were included in the Bible in the first place. So how can we be sure that such miracles have occurred? Well, the historicity of the miracle accounts in the Bible obviously hinges on the historicity of the books that contain those miracle accounts 
and therefore on the historical accuracy of the writer or writers who recorded them. And on our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we used the example of the Book of Acts, which most scholars agree was written by Luke. Sir William Ramsay was an archaeologist and biblical skeptic. He taught at the University of Edinburgh and believed that the Bible writers made up many of the stories it contained. At first he thought the book of Acts was full of errors. To prove that Luke was a poor historian, he traveled to Asia Minor to do an on-site investigation for himself. He felt he could discredit Luke's unverifiable stories by checking the historical details that could be tested. Ramsay returned to Great Britain a believer. Every one of Luke's facts checked out. As we mentioned on Anchored by Truth before, Luke even got the titles used within the Roman bureaucracy correct, which was not an easy task because the Romans often rearranged their bureaucracy. A particularly striking example of Luke's accuracy was his use of the term politarch for officials in Thessalonica. Until Ramsey's investigation, the term was unknown in Greek literature outside Acts. Ramsey found five inscriptions with the term in the city. So far from proving that Luke was either a sloppy or imaginative historian, Ramsey wound up proving that Luke was a very careful and accurate observer and historian. And Luke's history, of course, included the records of many notable miracles, like healings performed by the apostles, and there was even a resurrection performed by Paul. The central point is that Luke's record of miracles that he reported on, in many cases that Luke observed himself, that that record of miracles is trustworthy because the other records that Luke made of events that occurred during the early period of the church that those other records of events are trustworthy. So if Luke's records of regular historical occurrences, people coming and going, ships sailing and not, people being in one location or another, if Luke's other records about those ordinary events of history are trustworthy, then his record about miracles is also trustworthy because Luke himself possesses the attribute of being a careful and diligent observer and reporter of history. But not everyone will agree with that assessment, will they? I mean, many people might say Luke was careful about geography and politics, but that doesn't mean that he didn't make up incidents about Jesus, Paul, or the others to give his books more pizzazz. More pizzazz? Really? I don't think that Luke's primary concern was clicks or likes. But nevertheless, let's consider this. The books contained in what we call the New Testament are all about 2,000 years old. And the books of the Old Testament are obviously older. But just because those books are that old now does not mean that they were that old when they were written. Far from it. I mean, if you just take the Gospels, for instance, the accounts of Jesus' life and, of course, the accounts of his miracles, most scholars believe that the Gospels that were written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke were completed around the middle of the first century A.D., the Gospel of John is usually considered to be the last of the Gospels to have been written, and even then the Gospel of John is typically dated in terms of its composition between about 70 A.D. and 90 A.D. 
So the point of all this is that it is very likely that the books that contain the records of Jesus' life, and therefore the records of Jesus' miracles, were all composed within a few decades of his life or death. There are some scholars that actually believe that the Gospel of Mark is the oldest and that it may have been composed as little as 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then if you go on into Luke's other book, the book of Acts, the book of Acts is typically dated around 62 to 64 AD because the book of Acts makes no mention whatsoever about the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. And if Jerusalem had fallen during the time in which Luke was writing, or before the time when Luke wrote Acts, it's very unlikely that a historian of Luke's caliber would have ignored such a momentous event. So again, the fact that the books of the New Testament are 2,000 years old to us does not mean that somehow those events were recorded thousands of years after they actually occurred. The opposite is actually true. The records of those events were actually made in the very near proximity to the occurrence of those events. And just by way of a comparison, there are scholars who study how legendary accounts might be created from what's originally a central truth, and most of the scholars believe that a period of several hundred years, at least a few hundred years, must elapse between the original event and the creation of the legendary account for there to be a reasonable possibility that that legend would take hold. So, the fact that the New Testament documents were composed in the very near aftermath of the events that actually took place precludes them from having a legendary or mythological character. In other words, the first documents that contained records of all these miracles were prepared well within the lifetimes of people who could have contested the accuracy of the reports of miracles. And Luke and the other writers knew that. They knew there were still plenty of people around who could have called out fabrications or false reporting. Exactly. There's a tendency today to see the people who lived during biblical times as being less sophisticated than we are, or more foolish than we are. I mean, there's a kind of belief that just because they were less advanced scientifically, that somehow made them more gullible. Well, that view is a form of arrogance that manifests itself as a type of recency bias. Uh, That's the bias that what's just occurred recently is somehow more truthful or accurate than what might have occurred sometime in the past. Well, the people of Jesus' day knew very well that you couldn't feed thousands of people with a few loaves and a couple of fish. As a matter of fact, the accounts of those events in the Bible contain the disciples' own objections and doubts that such a thing could take place. Well, if the gospel writers, the ones who were recording Jesus' life and recording, therefore, some of the portions of the lives of his own disciples, if those gospel writers were really trying to manufacture a legendary account, the last thing they would have done was to include the disciples, the apostles, own doubts and fears, because that would have been embarrassing to men of that stature. But that's exactly what the gospel writers did. They included everything, good, bad, didn't matter. If one of the disciples looked like an idiot in a particular account, the gospel writers just went ahead and recorded it. So the gospel writers, just the fact that they were willing to record things that obviously were unflattering about the apostles and the disciples, that lends extra credibility to the fact that the accounts in the Bible are true accounts because the gospel writers did not spare anyone in their accounts of the truth. And in fact, if you look carefully at the accounts of the miracles in the Bible, you will see that many of the accounts often contain what might be termed undesigned confirmations. So you are thinking of many of the details contained in the stories themselves, like the turning of water into wine. 
John didn't just report this incident as happening somewhere where confirmation would have been impossible. He gave us a specific place, Cana of Galilee, and he gave us the details of the occasion. He tells us that it was at a wedding and that something embarrassing to the host was about to happen. They were about to run out of wine, and that would have ruined the celebration. Yes, and John gives us lots of those details. He mentions that the wine was created from water poured into some large jugs that normally held water for ceremonial washing. So while we can't see for ourselves the water turning into wine, it is well known, even by secular historians, that the details contained in that account are historically accurate. We can locate Cana of Galilee on a map. It's about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. And the reason John called it Cana of Galilee was because there was another Cana located in a different district within Israel. So he was specific. This event occurred in Cana of Galilee. The laws that prescribed the need for the ceremonial washing, those were well known to be part of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's well known today that the Jews held lengthy wedding feasts and celebrations. Sometimes they went on for seven or eight days. And unlike today, where it's more typical to invite only close families and friends to come to a wedding, the Jews invited huge crowds. Weddings were a time of celebration for them. In some small towns, the whole village might be invited. Well, these large crowds, plus, of course, the lengthy celebration, would have made it easy for a host to run out of wine. So, when John included all of these details, we can't, again, observe directly the water turning into wine, but we can see that these other details add a level of historical accuracy because we know that those other historical details are, in fact, accurate. We have confirmation in abundance from pottery, from archaeological discoveries, from other records. We know that the details that John provided about that one account of the water turning into wine, we know that those details are historically reasonable. Plus, when John wrote his book about Jesus' life, it's entirely possible that there would have been other people around, still living, who might have attended that wedding, or at least would have been related to someone who attended that wedding. So if, in fact, that account of the water turning into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee hadn't happened, likely there would have been plenty of people who could have called John out, who could have said that John was lying. You also think that it is important to note that, in addition to having been written very close to the time the events actually occurred, the books of the Bible that we call Gospels and Acts circulated widely in the years following their completion. It's not as though these books were hidden away like the Dead Sea Scrolls out in the desert so that errors or attempted deceptions couldn't have been caught. Yes. You know, we're most familiar with the books of the Bible because they are our Bible. The things that we call the books of the Bible didn't start out as being books of the Bible. They were letters or individual communications that were being sent from one person to another or that were designed to be read in fairly small early churches. It's not like those letters and those individual communications were unknown in the broader community because they received a lot of attention. They received so much attention because the leaders of the earliest churches in the Christian era, when they wrote their own letters, they quoted liberally from the letters that they had gotten from the disciples, the apostles, or the gospel writers. It's been said that you could probably reconstruct 95% of the New Testament just by using quotations that were included by the early church fathers in their own writings. And you have to remember that all these letters, all this communication is being sent around during a period of intense opposition to the formation of the church. Opposition initially from the Jews, 
later opposition from the Roman authorities. So if, while these early writings are circulating around in an atmosphere of intense opposition, if there had been lies, distortions, errors, just things that were outright wrong, those mistakes would have been called out because the authorities would have been only too happy to discredit the accounts of the things that were being circulated. But those early accounts weren't discredited. Well, if the earliest critics of the church weren't able to expunge the records of the miracles from the accounts that form today our New Testament, when those people were in a perfect position, had a perfect opportunity, still had living witnesses that they could call, if those early oppositional authorities who had a perfect opportunity to discredit the accounts of the miracles and they couldn't do so, Why do people today think that they are in a better position to discredit those accounts? Well, I think many critics might say that. Even considering all that you've said, they still don't believe that the accounts of miracles in the Bible can be true. They could say that they've never seen water turned into wine, or a person's shadow heal someone of a disease. But what would you say to that observation? I would say that the Bible, its reports, and its records are a form of evidence. We can validate that the content of our Bible has been reliably transmitted from the autographa, the original source documents, and we can test a huge number of facts that the Bible relates. Details of history, geography, culture, religious practices, and even the names of specific people. Well, when people refuse to accept the accuracy of those claims... Their doubt or disbelief is a personal evaluation, but as sincerely held as that evaluation or opinion may be, it is not evidence. Doubting evidence is not evidence. Now, naturally, I recognize that this is one of the reasons that Bible critics will often go look for evidence to point out that some of the Bible writers, some of the Gospel writers, got historical details wrong. They hope that by casting doubt on certain details that they can cast doubt on the entirety. That's what Sir William Ramsey set out to do, but he was converted by what he learned. Now, that's not to say that there aren't legitimate points of debate about some of the details of biblical accounts. You know, nobody's saying that we've resolved all the questions, all the legitimate questions that might arise, but it is important to note that no one, neither Christian scholars or secular historians for that matter, can view the past. All anyone can do today is to study the evidence that comes from the past and propose a reasonable interpretation of that evidence. And everybody who views evidence interprets that evidence through a lens. So it is no more reasonable to set aside a Christian's interpretation of that evidence because of their faith than it would be to discount a non-believer's interpretation because of their lack of faith. What we have to do is let the evidence speak for itself and make as good or the best determinations that we can. So, the main point is that someone who simply chooses to disbelieve the Bible's accounts of miracles may not be persuaded a miracle occurred, but their evaluation does not affect the historical fact of whether one did. Someone's disbelief in miracles is their privilege but it does not constitute evidence which affects the historicity of the Bible's miracle accounts. Sounds like a perfect time to close with a prayer. Today, let's pray a prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters who live in lands where they are subject to hostility, oppression, or even death just for believing in Jesus as their Savior. And let's let the knowledge that there are such places in the world 
animate us to ensure that that condition is never replicated in our own country. Prayer for Persecuted Christians Father of comfort and deliverance, you are a merciful God and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed because they belong to you. We grieve for them and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you will never leave or forsake any of your children and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will. Raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. For those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that can only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray, now and always, only in Christ's holy name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. All of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous but our boss is.